This week on Writers Inc. Always you get ideas when you're like around, right? Like yeah. wherever you are. Uh, I was just, I had to be stuck in South Carolina for a week for some family stuff recently. And I was just like, I, I just kept, I, I didn't want people to think I was taking notes about them. So I just keep like <laughs> running back to my bedroom and like writing stuff down. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Zach, more weight. <laughs> we can't even, we can't talk about that on here because that's like you could never explain it and you would have to be there. It's a stupid inside joke. We just got it's back from Salem, such Massachusetts. Such a stupid inside joke. And uh, JD, have you ever been in the Salem Witch Museum in Salem? No, you know the funny thing is like we 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 went there on Saturday. By the way, but we were there with that the big group of people that I mentioned. Um, we walked by it, you know, like five times, and I, they kept starting. Like you know, their tours are like odd times. So, like we would have to wait for like forty minutes, and like that just wasn't going to happen. Um, plus, it was raining out. I don't know if you guys were outside at all, but like the, yeah. the weather sucked. So like hanging out on the sidewalk for like forty minutes waiting for a tour to start. Um, we just we didn't do it. But did, you guys went in. Is is it yeah. everything yeah. they make it out to be? It, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately we went in i would have rather stood in the rain i mean it was it was probably the worst part of our trip which is probably not a great way to start the podcast talking about our author event and the worst aspect of it but <laughs> we had some high hopes for some salem witch history and it was uh i don't know it was it was like it was like an amusement park ride from the 1980s that's what it felt like my daughter found one of those. I, I don't remember what the name of it was, but she stopped my wife in front of this store and they had like some kind of haunted hallway. That's what my, my daughter kept calling it. She's like, you got to go to the haunted hallway. She like, stopped my wife there, wouldn't let her go anywhere. And I was like on the other side of Salem. So I had to use like the iPhone GPS, find my friends thing and track them down. Um, we went in there. It was like, I think like eight bucks a person for adults and kids were free. And they handed us these 3D glasses and we walk in and, and it's like the silliest stuff. Like they had like a box of blueberries hanging up on the wall, you know, like th things like that. And it was like nothing was 3D. Like the glasses were all gummed up and nasty. So like it made it actually harder to, to see anything. Um, but my daughter loved it. Like we got through the other end of it and she wanted to go again and again and again. And like we spent like an hour and 20 minutes going in and out of this one ridiculous hallway. Um, but to me, that kind of summed up Salem, you know, because like you, you kind of have to go to the back roads and the cemeteries to actually get the really good stuff. If you stick in the, the main track there where the museums are and the tourists go, you, you get exactly what you what you paid for. You get a, a Disney ride in, in the middle of Massachusetts. Yeah, it's it's t-shirt shops and things. Uh, luckily, we had a, a a scholar with us who did a really nice talk on the history of witchcraft in in America, and uh, and he said that really Danvers is where a lot of the stuff went down. But but Danvers, the next town over from Salem, doesn't want any association with like the Salem witch hysteria stuff. Like they <laughs> they don't encourage tourists. They don't have the t-shirt shops. And it, it, it's just an interesting dynamic. I mean, we, we had a fantastic time. We had, uh, I don't know what, Zach, 15, 16 authors with us. Um, yeah. We built this cool world where everyone's going to write a story, and it's got this magical element. Uh, we're going to publish the anthology as a charity anthology later in the fall. 
and a uh, great group of people. The weather sucked. Uh, Salem was a bit disappointing, but but the the event overall was really successful. And uh, I I just got back last night, and I think Zach got back two days ago as we record this. Yeah. So we're still trying to get our our sea legs back under us. Yeah, and I'm going right back out of town tomorrow. So, uh, you know, I think we're burying the real lead here, though. We're not really touched on something. I can't believe JD was there and didn't tell us. We literally <laughs> just found out. This is the second time you've done this to me in like a month. Like there hey, was man, like you... three podcasts ago where you were like, by the way, I was five minutes from you down the road at the airport in Nashville. But I, you know, even though it's right next to my favorite restaurant in town, we couldn't like stop. We had to go. Now you're in freaking Salem the same time as us. Well, we, you know, just like I used to find my friends to find my wife and daughter, we use it to stay away from you guys. Like, oh, they're a half block away. Make a right. Get out of here. God, when you come to the <laughs> I, summit in September, I'm not going to show up. <laughs> I just figured you were busy. You know, like I was toting a three-year-old. You know, like how do you do a, a writing conference with a three-year-old that wants to stand in a haunted hallway all day? Well, um, so I just didn't want to subject you guys to that. I mean, we were with a bunch of three-year-olds. So <laughs> I mean, there you go. You know, but you know, you know what they with say beards, about assumptions. Three-year-olds with beards. <laughs> next time next time for sure i'm waiting like next week um, we'll start the show and jd jd will be like hey have you guys ever been to that rock and roll hall of fame place that's pretty cool <laughs> i do want to check that out um <laughs> anyway <laughs> what are you working on and so once you got back from salem without without mentioning us or seeing us what, what, what were you working on well, we had a house full of people. My my sister finally visited, and like her family always vacationed with their their best friends um, and all their kids. So they they showed up on my doorstep with like eleven or twelve people. So we had you know like all our guest rooms were taken. We had air mattresses everywhere. Somehow I managed to keep my office to myself, um, but I, I more or less just locked myself in there and, and tried to get my writing done as as early as I can. And then you know got to hang out with my sister for the first time in, in years. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, right now they're actually up in the mountains in, in New Hampshire. I think they're they're river rafting today doing all the the cool touristy stuff that i don't get to do um but yeah that that was pretty much it was this um, the first but, visit since uh pandemic started pretty much uh yeah yeah well actually my my wife's mom visited us once like right after she got vaccinated um but it you know that, that kind of stuff seems to be opening up um we, we've noticed it you know with that cabin that we we have in in tennessee too like the bookings are just going going through the roof all of a sudden everybody's decided it's time to go on a vacation I'll tell you, the, uh, we went to the fireworks show in Boston while we were up there, me and my wife did, and it was pretty packed there. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, it was, there was a lot of people down at Boston Commons watching the fire. Of course, it was raining, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was very open. It was, it was good to see. Pandemic so. is, is over. That actually reminds me of something. I, I did that uh, master class for, for Thriller Fest a couple of days ago. And, oh, yeah. Um, I also, I don't, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read Karen Slaughter's um, new novel yet. Yeah, they, they sent us ARCs because I guess she's, she's coming on the podcast sometime soon. But Yeah, it's on my um, Kindle right now. Yeah, so she actually mentions COVID and the, the virus and wearing masks and all that kind of stuff in her book. And that was the first time I've actually run into mm. that. Most authors seem to be, you know, more or less pretending it didn't happen, um, which I, I did the exact same thing. Like the book I'm working on now, I said it a few years back just so I wouldn't have to deal with it. Um, but her novel is the first one I've seen coming out that actually, you know, hits hits on it full full on. Like right um, in the first couple, chapter too, right? Like it's right, yeah. right at the beginning. Yeah, and she does a, a fantastic job of like describing facial expressions behind masks. So, like, because you, you've got to do that, you know, everybody's wearing a mask, but you still have to, to kind of describe that. Um, and a couple of the writer students in the class were were touching on it too. So, I was just curious if you guys included anything related to COVID and anything you're working on right now, or are you just kind of pretending it didn't happen and moving on? I, I think I'm going to pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I already write post-apoc, so it's like <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, 
Uh, well, this, this, yeah, is, so, this is post post epoch, right? Like, yeah, yeah right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I'll maybe I'll put like words like social distancing in some of my future books or something. But uh, you know, we'll see. But yeah, I haven't brought, I haven't done that. Yeah, I was just curious because, like, the, you know, I, I had writers, you know, students, and they're working on their first book, and, you know, at least two or three of them had mentions of it in there, and, you know, they're not even done with that novel, and I'm thinking, well, they're going to send it off to a publisher maybe six months from now, so this is already going to be behind us, and then that book, even if they get a traditional deal, you know, it's not coming out for another year or year and a half, so, you know, at that, that point, like, society's not even going to remember what COVID was. We'll, we'll have moved on to whatever the next, you know, f- nasty, fatal disease is that's taking over the world, but COVID will be in the rear view. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to be the Debbie Downer here, but I, I was listening to one podcast and uh, the guest uh, was asked a question about like, you know, do you think people have these lessons they've learned from COVID? And and he kind of chuckled. And he's like, No, everyone's gonna forget it. Like that's what happens all the time. People always, you know, they they have these life changing moments, and then the the catastrophe passes, and they go and they go they forget it. They go right back to normal. They forget all the lessons they've learned. Yeah, it's essentially hey, well, it. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it, it's almost like when they set up a memorial, you know, you throw some teddy bears out there and some candles, but then those candles burn away. And by the time that the wick is done, everybody's forgotten why it was all there to begin with. And somebody yeah. comes by and cleans it up and it never happened. Yep. Human nature. Well, I was going to say really quick and, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, for, you know, moving on and, and big things that happen and, and lessons learned, I don't. I don't know how public you want this, but I'm going to call you out anyway because I think Jay, you deserve a little congratulations uh, because, um, like, and people who've been following you on podcast forever, I think will be able to relate to this because they're not going to see your attic too much longer. <laughs> I don't know how public you want to make this, but it is now. So, but I figured I'd say congratulations. So. Well, thanks, that. Zach. Thanks. Uh, you want to open up my medical records? Do you want to talk about my <laughs> bank statement? Like, Did I just make you really uncomfortable? <laughs> well, I just don't want to jinx it. Like, okay. I, I don't, I don't want to jinx it until the house closes. Okay, but you did sell your house while we were in Salem, potentially. Potentially, so, there, it's yeah. under contract. Let's just say that. Well, I'm sorry I totally, you know, messed you up for like two weeks from now when you wanted to talk about this. I, I think you, even after the new people step in, you should just keep doing the podcast from your <laughs> attic there. I think just, just wander in and, and just kind of go upstairs and not talk to anybody. Knock uh, it out or just leave. squat. I mean, just, yeah. I'll just stay in the attic. They'll be moving in. I'm just, no, like, no, I'm not moving. Nope, nope, not yeah. leaving. Your wife would probably never know if you just didn't show up at the new place. <laughs> probably not. You know, she probably wouldn't even know. So, all right. Well, I'm pretty sure we're here to actually do a show. We should probably probably get on with that. Let's right? do probably. that. Let's take care of some business <laughs> and get to the guest. So, uh, all right. as always, want to give a nice shout out to the Kobo Writing Life team. We love those people over at Kobo. You get to set your own prices. You get monthly promotional opportunities. And the best part is there's no exclusivity. So if you are interested in getting your book wide on all marketplaces, go to KoboWritingLife.com and check it out. We also want to give a nice warm shout out to new patron Jimmy Essien. Uh, Jimmy, which is a Salem too, so thanks, Jimmy. Uh, I wanted to give you a shout out on the podcast. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the Writers Inc. podcast, go to patreon.com slash Writers Inc. podcast. And for uh, just a dollar a month, you can submit questions to our monthly Q&A episode, and we will answer them most of the time and sometimes properly. So uh, don't, don't miss out on that opportunity. So, uh, JD, who is our guest this week? 
we've got Grady Hendrix, um, who is a, a staple in my house. I, I grab every one of his books for for uh, he he he's got this unique ability to combine horror and humor, um, and it's it's very rare to be able to do that, and especially as well as he does. Um, I just finished up one called um, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which was just it was crazy good. Um, I actually listened to the audio book uh, when I was driving to Tennessee. Um, I listened to the whole the whole book you know, on that on that particular trip, and yeah, you know, I, I loved it, and I've I've read I think pretty much everything that he's he's put out. Um, the only one I haven't touched yet is the new one, so hopefully I'll get that sometime soon. Um, his new book is called The Final Girl Support Group, and I think it releases July 13th, um, so that'll be around the same time this podcast airs. Um, so here he is, Grady Hendricks. Yeah, I'm having a hard time getting started here because you're so beautiful that it's making me uncomfortable, and I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> A lot of people have that problem. I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, uh, okay. it happens. Yeah, that's not a real question. Okay, I got to give you a real question. This is yeah. uh, this is you have to pick one, um, and you can't say both or neither. Led okay. Zeppelin or Black Sabbath? Black Sabbath. You didn't even hesitate. Nah. Why? No, no need. Uh, because you know, when I wrote "We Sold Our Souls," I spent. I'm not a natural metalhead, and so I spent a long time trying to find a way into metal, like sort of like, you know, what was the track on the album by the band that was going to sort of like really get me in there that I was going to sort of fall in love with. And I listened to a ton of stuff and I just was not feeling it. And it wasn't until I listened to, um, I think it was the track Black Sabbath off the first album by Black Sabbath that I was like, ah, I get it. And then I sort of went from there forward, which, you know, it's where I should have started since it's the very beginning. Um, Zeppelin's fine. I, I, I have no problem with Led Zeppelin, um, but I find myself a lot more drawn to the sort of horror movie aesthetic of Sabbath rather than the sort of Lord of the Rings aesthetic of Led Zeppelin. That's a very astute observation. Uh, I would, I, this is really interesting to me. So you aren't, you weren't a quote unquote natural metalhead, um, but yet you sort of, you sort of did the research to kind of get where you needed to be. I, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, how did you, were you listening to any metal at all? Or you just sort of chose that for the book? Not really. It's, um, you know, growing up, I was pretty prejudiced against metal. Um, <laughs> I just was like, you know, I was, I, I went to high school in the late eighties, early nineties. And, and we just all thought metal was, was garbage. And the people <laughs> who listened to it were glue huffers. And, um, it was, it was pretty, pretty awful. And, uh, and so um, we were snobs. And, um, but, you know, one of the reasons I write is because I really like learning about stuff. I really like sort of getting into stuff I wouldn't do otherwise. And so I knew it had to be metal for the book because I wanted a form of music that was really looked down on. And I feel like even hip hop is considered cool even if people don't like it or they think it's dangerous or, oh my goodness gracious, that gangsta rap, um, it's still cool and it has like street cred. But I feel like people, if you say you like metal, people immediately are like, oh, I see you live in your parents' basement. You jerk <laughs> off a lot. You're probably <laughs> a pothead. Like, you know, it's just like, it's really an easy way to get pigeonholed. And, um, and I know there's a lot more to it than that. You know, there was a really interesting um, 
survey and I can't remember who did it. It was like guitar magazine or someone like that, but they were looking at sort of musical genres and they found the most overlap between fans of classical music and fans of metal. Um, you know, it's, and it's, and one of the things I love about metal is that there's so many subgenres, and I find that yeah, like some people are rigid about them. You know, I only listen to like, you know, noise metal. I only listen to prog, you know, that kind of stuff. But like, like, I feel like by trying to define so often what is and isn't death metal, what is and isn't speed metal, what the difference is between death metal and speed metal, like that kind of stuff, it makes you think about the music a lot. And I think it really like, for the people making it, it's really interesting because like, you know, changing their aesthetic a little bit suddenly puts them in a new genre, um, which they can play with. So yeah, I really fell in love with it. <laughs> that's, that, that's amazing. I, I'm, I'm really impressed by that. Uh, uh, it must have, there must've been something about that book because it seems like it's the one that finally tipped your mom in your favor. Like she finally became a fan of that book. <laughs> Why yeah, was that I'm the not case? I'm not sure if it was that book so much or if it was the fact that at that point it looked like I had no other options. Like clearly I was doing this for a living um, and I didn't have a backup plan. So I think at that point it was like, get on the bus or, or stay home. <laughs> well, and I think too, one of the things I want our listeners to, to take away from this is uh, we're not going to talk about heavy metal the whole time. Don't worry, guys. But, uh, but your sense of humor, um, your tone, your, your author voice is, is so refined and, and, and so unique. And this, is, this might have been my favorite passage of any of the stuff of yours that I read that came, came from We Sold Our Souls. I just got, I got to read this. Yeah, he, please. He was the stupidest, angriest kid that ever known. He thought Jewish was a country and claimed his dad invented the question mark. When a kid called him a liar, he tried to throw a hornet's nest at him. He got stung so many times, the paramedics had to inject him with adrenaline to restart his heart. Beautiful, man. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I once had a kid at summer camp who claimed that his dad invented the comma. And like <laughs> that every time people used a comma, they had to pay his dad. We were, we were like 10. It was Bible <laughs> camp. And it was like, it was just like the weird. And like, we didn't know enough to question him on it. We were just like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you... Do you have to work on those jokes? Do they come naturally to you? I mean, what, in, in your writing process, are you like out biking and you get this joke and you're like, oh, that's going in a book? Like, how's it work for you? Well, I mean, always you get ideas when you're like around, right? Like yeah. wherever you are. Uh, I was just, I had to be stuck in South Carolina for a week for some family stuff recently. And I was just like, I, I just kept, I, I didn't want people to think I was taking notes about them. So I just keep like <laughs> running back to my bedroom and like writing stuff down. Um, but yeah, to make it work on the page, you really, I, I at least really have to work on it a lot. Like just to get that flow going, reading it out loud, seeing how it sounds. Um, horror and jokes have, are really like technically rough in terms of timing. Um, and they're either right or they're either a hundred percent right, or they're a hundred percent wrong. There's no 99%. And so that takes a long time. I'm, I'm slogging my way through a first draft right now. And I think today I'm chucking it out and starting over because I'm in the swamp and I, I got to go back to the beginning. It's just got, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything except slogging forward and I'm not doing any of the polishing and honing. And I've just like, this book is just, I'm holding like a dead bird here. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I, this chicken's got to go. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah so but yeah so that really precise technical stuff is like a huge part of what i do well let's dig into that a little bit more um how how is it that you do what you do do you um are you a pantser do you plot things are you somewhere in the middle um what's your writing process like uh, it varies from book to book. Like the one I'm doing now, I've done an awful lot of it by hand. Just it, it's whatever keeps your butt in the seat and keeps you writing, you know, um, writing, we sold our souls, you know, that, that scene at the, the rest stop where the, the crowd of people attacked, I was really putting off writing that. And so, and I usually write in this stinky little office on my laptop. And finally I like took a notebook and went to a diner and sat in there and stayed for like three hours until I'd like written a draft of that scene. Cause I just, I, I was putting it off. I just couldn't, it was a lot to get on the page and technically it was complicated and um, I was just avoiding it. Um, but so usually I start with a pretty good idea of where I'm going and then often that goes away two thirds of the way through. And I usually write a lot of drafts, like start to finish drafts, like they just die at a certain point. And I kind of like drag their corpse over the finish line and then start again. Um, so it's a really, I, I type fast. I don't know if I write fast, but I type fast. Um, I was a journalist for a while and it's just like, it's a skill I developed. Um, so I have no problem writing a draft. I just making it good's the tricky part. So <laughs> getting words on the page, not a problem. Getting the right words on the page, I, I just have to keep refining and refining and refining. Mm. Is there, I mean, you mentioned your office, but is there a certain time of day, a special place that you have to be? Can you write anywhere? No, I can do it anywhere. Um, usually I'm really trying to maintain a routine right now. And like 2020, having a routine was really helpful to me. Um, and so I usually try to write first thing in the morning, like from six or seven or whenever my day is starting till noonish or one-ish. Um, and then in the afternoon I do emails and stuff. And then I usually try to poke at stuff a little bit later on. I've got a couple of projects on the go right now. So I usually do the book in the morning and then whatever else I'm doing in the afternoon or early evening. And my wife's a chef, so she's at work until one. So I got, I, it's either, it's either writing or Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you had a great, uh, short story in the sundown, uh, anthology called Murderboard. Oh, I love that. Uh, oh, thanks. I really you, appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, it, are short stories sort of one of those other projects you might work on in the afternoon? No, well, it's funny. I don't, I'm, I'm really bad at short stories. Like they take me a really, really long time and um, they're hard for me. And actually what I'm going to do as soon as I finish this book, I have a folder of like 80 or 90 concepts that I've wanted to like, just ideas that I really like that I want to do something with probably more like 40. Um, and I'm just going to go through that and try to do short stories for them and just jam through it in like a couple of months and just see what happens. Um, just, I really need to, this, this book I'm working on now, I started it last year and it's taking me a really abnormally long time and it's been really a pain in the butt and feels very stillborn in a lot of ways. So when I'm done with it, I, I need to do some stuff that's like fast and furious. Well, almost like a palate cleanser. Yeah. And like normally short stories really make me agonize and pull my hair out and, and bleed from my eardrums. But like, I, I just really am like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just shotgun a bunch of them at the wall. They're not for any publication. Let's see if any of them are any good. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. I, short stories are hard. I think it's, it's so hard to tell a nice, concise tale than it is yeah. to have, you know, the real estate of a full novel. So I totally get that. 
Yeah, it's and it's like, you know, you, you still need to work out all the character stuff. You still need to work out what happened before and after. I find it in a lot of ways just harder. <laughs> you know, it's it's a huge amount of work and you wind up with like 4,000 words and you're like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's it certainly doesn't have the commercial appeal that um you know a new novel does. So it's it's hard yeah. to justify the time to work on them too. Yeah, and also I really you know I really like character stuff and and lives and things like that. And that's and short stories are all about what's happening right this minute. And so I always find that really tough. Yeah, yeah. We as as this episode airs tomorrow, final the final girl support group comes out. Uh, this this looks pretty cool. Uh, tell everyone about it and, and the premise. I love it. Yeah. So this is um, a book that took me, I, I looked at the first draft recently and it was like January 9th, 2014. Um, this book's gone through so many permutations, uh, but it's essentially about, you know, I always wondered what, or, you know, what happens to final girls like after the movie and there's been Final Girl projects before, but I always felt like they trying to treat them like these campy icons, like screen queens. Right. And I wanted to take them seriously. Like what happens when the worst thing that can happen to you happens when you're like 16? Your friends are all dead. You had to kill someone. You're always worried there's going to be a sequel. Like wh what's that like? And so I came up with this idea of doing a support group of these Final Girls. And it's like 20 years after the incidents that made them kind of famous. And they still meet at this group therapy session. And, and some are, some are, you know, substance abusers, some are in denial, some have turned into like self-help queens, some have turned into like total survivalist, paranoid shut-ins. And, but they're all like, why are we still obsessed with something that happened when we were in high school? And they're sort of breaking up. And then someone begins to kill them one by one. And the, only the most paranoid member believes that someone's out to get them. The rest just think it's bad luck. So, um, you know, so that's sort of the pitch. And uh, it's, I really wanted to write something about horror, you know, like, I, I just was thinking, like, you know, I've been watching people get murdered for fun for like 40 years. Like, what, <laughs> what's that say about me? Like, anything good? And, and I really wanted to sort of figure out, like, what my relationship to horror was. And so that book was largely trying to figure out, like, what's this like? What does this mean? Like, what are we here? What are we doing here? For people who might not be horror fans can you explain hmm. what the what the final girl is sure the final girl is basically the woman who survives the movie she's you know uh laurie strode in halloween or alice hardy in friday the 13th or sally sally hardesty i think at texas Chainsaw. you know the one who sort of like gets away from the killer or often kills the killer and then like the last time you see her she's like riding away covered in blood in the back of a truck or or waking up from a nightmare or screaming a lot or you know uh having the jitters. Um, and the bummer I always thought with Final Girls is even if they survive one movie, often when the movie has a sequel, they'll get killed in that one. Like um, like Alice Hardy in uh, Friday the 13th, she survives, she's the final girl. And then she gets killed at the beginning of Friday the 13th part two. And I'm like, that's so crappy. Like <laughs> she's just like trying to put her life back together. It's, you know, she's having some tea. She's talking to her mom on the phone. She's got a depressing apartment. And, and for her, it's just a, a Thursday night. And no, it's a sequel. You're screwed. Like never let your guard down. You're, you're, you're done. It's a bummer. It's a terrible <laughs> life. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's so interesting to me that you sort of, uh, you you have this intersection of horror and heavy metal, not in all, all your stuff, but there there are these these strands of both of those um, genres that run through your work, and both of those are, or I should say, traditionally have been looked down upon by 
by the the critics, so to speak. Horrors it hasn't gotten nearly as much respect as some other genres. How how do you? What is your opinion on that? What's your approach to to being a horror writer? Yeah, I mean, I sort of do it by accident almost. Um, I write what I write, and you know, people are like, oh, it's horror, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I'll I'll double down on that. Um, and uh, and like you know, as a kid, I wasn't. I I found the covers of the books too creepy for me, like too gross. I read Stephen King and, and Clive Barker, but I didn't read a whole lot else um, until later. My most of my exposure to horror was like all of us, which was watching the movies with our friends, you know, like it was this communal fun thing. And I feel like, yeah, horror doesn't get much respect. I feel like there's two reasons for that. And part of it's horror's fault. Like in the early nineties, there was a huge glut after Silence of the Lambs of serial killer uh, horror novels. And they also were coming out of the splatterpunk movement. And there was this real sort of race to the bottom for like really gory, gruesome stuff. And unfortunately, a lot of it wasn't really well edited. There was so much of it. And a lot of it was really misogynistic looking back. It's like, you know, I'm reading a ton of books right now to put together a show for Final Girls. Cause instead of doing author appearances, I do like a show about the book. Uh, so I'm reading all this stuff and like, reading all these horror novels from the early 90s. I mean, it is like a catalog of women getting decapitated, burned to death, mutilated, you know, just page after page. And, you know, reading them in retrospect, you're like, yikes. So I think horror, that part of what, that's part of what gave horror a bad name. But I think the other thing is, horror is very self-conscious and shy about claiming horror novels as horror. I mean, Toni Morrison's Beloved is a horror novel. You know, I mean, you know, that's undeniably so. Shirley Jackson is a horror writer. Chuck Palahniuk writes horror. Um, you know, it's like, we just are very shy. You know, science fiction was quick to say Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale is science fiction. So you're now reading science fiction. Maybe you should read some more. Horror never did that with Beloved. You know, it never really did that with We've Always Lived in the Castle. I mean, I really think an argument can be made that the two great books of the 20th century are Toni Morrison's Beloved and um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Um, they are both horror novels by, by women, you know? And I, and I certainly think they're definitely the two great horror movies of the century, you know, uh, horror novels of the century. So I just feel like horror is a little gun shy about claiming people as our own. Um, I don't know why that is. I mean, John Updike, The Witches of Eastwick, it's a horror novel, you know, like it's about witches and Satan. Um, so yeah, for some reason, we've got this real shyness about that. Hmm. What about elevated horror? What's your take on that label? I mean, sure. If, if, that, <laughs> if that gets people to read it, why not? You know, I mean, to me, like Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones and uh, all these, right? They're, they're writing horror, you know, like I, I, I'm not as big a fan of the subgenres as people are, but I also get the value in them. If you like zombies, you want to read zombies. You know, if you're a gore hound, you want to read gore. Like I, I get that. That's just not how I, I read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of monsters, uh, any updates on from Amazon on the Southern book club's guide to slaying vampires? Uh, yeah. Well, no, they basically got the script. That was the update. They've got the script or the, the scripts for the season and they're looking at them. But my experience has been people in LA are very, very slow readers. Like I imagine they use a finger and their lips move. <laughs> um, so who the hell knows when I'll hear from them. And also as the guy who wrote the book, I'm the last person to hear anything weirdly enough. 
So there's is there any chance that you can negotiate a Slayer cameo into into it into the show? Oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> well, funnily enough, um, one of um, my next door neighbor's house. My growing up, I lived next to the, to this family, and and they had this house that's actually. Um, Gretchen's house in my best friend's exorcism, just because it's, it's really distinctive and very modern and really unique for that area. But um, the folks who live in there, their daughter, who's a friend of mine, is married to uh, Tom Youngblood of Camelot with a K, the, the melodic metal band. Um, so it's not a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh, your career path because you, as you mentioned, you uh, you were a journalist for a long time, and I'd love to hear sort of the the evolution or development of your skill set going from journalism to long form narrative fiction. Yeah, well, I um, I sort of back painted myself into a corner where more and more the only thing I had experience doing was writing. Um, and I was actually working as an office manager for a nonprofit and I started getting freelance gigs, uh, writing about movies and pop culture and stuff. And, and that was just a, came about through a weird series of things. Um, and I eventually was making enough money to make a living at that. And that was when you could make good money freelancing in sort of the pop culture, then the cultural coverage arena, if you could write fast. Um, so I was writing for the New York Post and the Village Voice and online places. And I would do some book work every now and then, like photo editing for a book or, you know, doing essays in a book of an anthology or um, and writing a lot of movie reviews for a bunch of papers and book reviews and <clears throat> writing for variety. And um, and so I, I made a really good living doing that. And then in 2008, that all kind of went away. Mm -hmm. I mean, when when the economic crisis hit. And that bubble burst, you know, all these magazines had to economize and cut back. And so, I mean, it really was like, it was like Dawn of the Dead in New York City. It was just like freelancers wandering the streets, like, you know, looking for work and, and dying like dogs in the gutter. I mean, people writing for bylines instead of pay. Um, and so... I was sort of up a creek because I had a skill set. I mean, I could talk to people, I could do interviews. I knew a fair amount about a very limited range of things and I could write, you know, I knew I could put sentences together and I'd written some short stories here and there. And so I went to, I applied to go to Clarion, uh, fantasy and science fiction writers workshop and um, got in. And that was really huge for me. I was in the class of 2009 because for six weeks I was with about, gosh, I think it's 30 people, maybe less, um, 20 people, something like that. But everyone who was there took it really seriously. And I didn't. Um, I was a little self-conscious about the genre label. Um, you know, now kids growing up, they all read Harry Potter. All of them read Harry Potter. You know, um, when I was growing up, you read a book about a wizard and other people knew and you would be mocked mercilessly. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, so I was really self-conscious and I realized pretty quickly I had to take it seriously because I was with these people for six weeks and if I didn't take it seriously, I would be the asshole. And that really made me sort of like buckle down and kind of get to work. And, um, and that was huge for me going to Clarion. It was like, it was like really six weeks boot camp in writing this stuff. And one of my teachers was, was Holly Black. And um, she was the first one we had because each week you had a different teacher. 
And she was the first one we had and you usually got a one-on-one with them. And she'd given us this writing exercise and I had kind of gone a little overboard with it. And it was supposed to be like 500 words. And I wrote like a 3000 word short story and she read it and she was like, look, if you're serious about it, you can do this for a living. She's like, you, you're, you're capable of doing this, but you're going to have to work at it. And I was like, okay, I mean, I can work. I can do that. Like, that's, that's something I'm used to. And so that from there, it was really, um, I'm really lucky. Like my wife's job, like could support us somewhat. Like there's been years when I supported us and um, there's been years when she supported us and years when we both support us. But so for about three years, um, she really did a lot of the burden. I was doing a lot of freelancing work, what little there was. And, um, and then I got a, I got a, I wrote a couple of books as a co-writer with a friend of mine from high school who was doing some YA books and then with my wife to do a cookbook. And then I got, I landed the gig to do horror store. And, um, and so from there it sort of went on and, you know, I didn't have an agent until uh, after we sold our souls just because I didn't have the juice to get a good agent. You know, I, I went out looking for an agent when I had the horror store contract and people were just like, no, they didn't, they didn't take my publisher seriously as a publisher because it was a small house. And, you know, the contract was like, my advance was like, I think it was like $12,000, you know? And it was like, it, it was, it was, you know, and you get that in, in, in a couple of different payments. So no one would even return my email. So it, it, really was kind of a weird, I kind of just fell into this and I've kind of had to figure it out as I've gone along. Um, And I'm now at the point where I feel reasonably confident at what I'm doing, but that's kind of a bad mistake because I feel like then I'm not, I want to be less comfortable. So the book I'm doing now, I've gotten a little too comfortable with, which is one reason I'm kind of tanking it and starting over. Wow. I don't know. That was a really long-winded answer no, no. to a really straightforward question. No, no, I, that's uh, that that makes a lot of sense. When when um, you realized that you could do this, but you were going to have to work at it, what did what did that look like? What were you taking classes? Were you just writing a lot more? Were you have a mentor? Yeah, no, it was really writing a lot and reading it a lot, um, letting other people hear it, like. You know, I started signing up for all those. Um, if I was going to a con, like Reader Con or something, or I would sign up for as many open mic or reading slots as possible because reading my stuff out loud in front of people really gave me an idea of what worked and what didn't. Um, I was still passing around manuscripts to people I went to Clarion with to have them read it and give me feedback. And and the biggest thing was um, I was taking the feedback like. I feel like there's sort of two decisions I made early on to take it seriously. And one of them was I was writing to be read. And so, so part of that was there was no bad note. Like I, any note someone gave me was a good note. Any feedback was good feedback. Even if it was stuff I didn't agree with, I then needed to see what that person was actually saying, you know, like to make it work. Um, I, I worked for John Joseph Adams on a couple of anthologies, reading Slush, which is enormously educational, not just reading Slush, but then seeing what makes it into the anthology and, and that kind of thing. But so so realizing there were no bad notes was a big thing and like being willing to self-edit and be pretty ruthless about that. Um, and then the other thing was, um, and I don't mean to sound vulgar, I, podcast is okay with profanity. It's fine, yeah. Yeah. If you're going to do this for a living or for me, I had to decide how much shit I was willing to eat. Like, cause you got to eat some shit. 
Um, and I decided that my amount was um, limitless. Um, so, <laughs> you, you know, an, an editor comes back and says, nope, this book's no good. Rather than argue, I would rewrite the book. Um, I was trying to do some screenplay work and I was getting these gigs that were like, you know, $1,000 here, 2000 I mean, they were really tiny things. And, you know, you'd get this enormously complicated set of notes on a project you were working on for free, hoping that if it got greenlit on the first day of shooting, you'd get $10,000. And I'd be like, okay, I'll execute the notes. You know, I mean, it would be sitting with my editor and him being like, okay, you've got a two book deal. We've done one book. What's the next book? And pitching him titles and concepts and nope, what, what next? And just going and going and going and going until there was something he was excited about. Um, it was just, you know, really just being willing to rip it all up and keep going and assume there's going to be another idea. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, and, and, you know, and I, and I get it. Everyone's got a different threshold for how much they're willing to, to do. And, and for me, it was just like, I, my threshold is, is zero. I, I'll, I'll do whatever and, or limitless, I guess, infinite. Um, and on the one hand, that's led to a lot of frustration. On the other hand, let me have a career. That is, uh, that's so hard to do. I, I just think there, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, there's so many people who will ask uh, for an expert opinion from someone they admire or respect, and then they get the feedback and they don't take it or they get angry about it. And it's, it's, I just think it's so hard to, to disassociate yourself from, from the creative output. So I think, uh, I totally agree with you, by the way, I, I think you have to be willing to eat lim limitless shit if you want to get where you want to go. And like, and it makes you a better writer, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Because I mean, writing, you know, they say it and I ignored it until I realized how true it was. It's just rewriting, it's just doing it over and over until you get it right. Um, and, you know, and one of the things also with that is that um, you have to really, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> well, you were just, sorry, you were just saying um, that, oh, you were saying that um, listening to other people's feedback and, and, you know, for me, it's like um, one of the things that really helped me out and I didn't realize it until afterwards is because I started out in journalism you're always getting edited. Like you're always getting, it's not like writing short stories where you have an artistic vision and then you may work with an editor. Journalism, you got an editor and they're gonna come in and do their thing all over what you've written, no, whether you like it or not. And um, I've had good editors, I've had mediocre editors, I've had great editors, I've had bad editors, but it got me used to the fact that my stuff wasn't set in stone. It was always going to go through an editor before anyone read it. They shit on it and then you eat it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly had stuff I've turned in um, and, and seen it in print and it's been unrecognizable. Um, and I just, you know, from that, I was like, okay, this editor likes this, but not this and this, but not that. So next time I can triangulate to make it look more like me. Um, I wrote what I thought was one of the best things I ever wrote as a journalist and got it completely shafted. Like, you know, I, um, I, I, I did this interview with this famously cantankerous cartoonist, or I did a review actually of, of, of this thing he'd been working on, this sort of his sort of magnum opus. And um, everyone was writing about this guy and kind of speculating about him and no one was talking to him because they were like, he's insane. So I managed to get his, his fax number and I faxed him. I said, look, 
would you be willing to annotate this review? Like you can go through and read what I'm saying about what you've written and we'll put in annotations. You saying where I'm right, where you think I'm wrong, what you're, and he's like, great. And I sent it to him and he sent me these annotations that were phenomenal. They were funny, they were smart. They took me to task on some stuff. They like were great about other things. And it was really a good, good piece. And no one was doing anything like this. And um, my editor blew a gasket and threatened <laughs> to fire me for showing a review to the subject before it was in print and violating the sanctity of this publication. And wow. so I had, to I had to apologize. I had to strip it all out. I had to rewrite it. Lesson learned, you know, like, like, um, but yeah, so I always, I was really got used to doing journals. I really got used to the fact that this is collaborative. There's no unique view here. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I got uh, one more question for you. We can kind of wrap yeah. up with this. Uh, totally fun, open-ended, no right or wrong answer. Uh, the, you know, the past year, much of our lives in the publishing industry have been totally turned on their heads. Where do you think the publishing industry in general is headed in the future? Um. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all going to be owned by Penguin Random House. Um, <laughs> One publisher to rule them all. <laughs> exactly. The dark, the dark tower will rise on, you know, the West 59th Street and we'll all just huddle in its shadow. And Listening every now to Led and Zeppelin. <laughs> exactly. The dark riders will go forth from time to time, um, scouring the land. Um, you know, I, I don't know, actually. It's, um, it's interesting. I... On the one hand, I see a lot of really depressing things. Like I see bestseller lists, which is the same things on them month after month after month after month and authors who you've seen on there for years. On the other hand, I see a lot of new voices coming out. And I think, you know, there's definitely pressure to get more diverse authors out there. Um, and I think that's huge. Like, I really think that's important, not from a moral point of view, although that's part of it, but also just like, Let's get some new stories. Like, you know, I've 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 heard what white dudes have to say. Like they've been they've been they've been they've had the they've been hogging the mic for a long time. I I I got that message loud and clear. And that's not to say there's not good white dude writers. I mean, I am one, but like I wanna I wanna know what horror's like if you grew up as a black woman in West Texas. I wanna know what your horror story is. I wanna know what a uh, Filipino horror story is. I want to read about, you know, uh, a, a trans Latinx horror story from Saskatchewan. Like, I want to hear that stuff because that's new to me. Those are voices I don't know. Um, so I think there's, you know, I think it's like a weird push me, pull you thing. On the one hand, publishing's consolidating and I see a lot of the same. On the other hand, I see a lot of places where it's expanding and I see a lot of different stuff coming in. So my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> Which I could have just said at the beginning. All right, Grady Hendrix. Uh, gotta say selfishly, anytime I can talk about hard rock and heavy metal and writing fiction, uh, I'm all game for that. So I was pretty excited. I'd love to know what you guys thought of it. I was going to say, I never thought in a million years on Writer's Inc. that we would get a Camelot reference. Like, <laughs> I might be the only person who knows who that band is because I actually, like, 
used to listen to that like really melodic like symphonic metal and they're like one of the state if you if you write fantasy and you like listening to music that's a great band camelot with a k to listen to i couldn't believe he mentioned that band <laughs> i'll have to add it to the list i, I know black sabbath i know led zeppelin <laughs> i do not know camelot <laughs> they're super cheesy it's, it's 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 really fun stuff so well one of the cool things about having a toddler is like i get to introduce her to all types of of music you know and see somebody's expression and it, you know for like the very first time and like I, i've played black sabbath for my daughter and it's like the funniest thing like i, I think it was she was probably maybe two years old the first time and we had actually just gone to salem like the first time um and somebody was out there you know you, the street performers sometimes play drums like on on buckets like somebody was out there doing that and she literally just started dancing like in the middle of the street it was the, the funniest thing so I, when we got home i just started experimenting with music and playing her different things and like she loved black sabbath she loved the beatles um she also loved bobby brown <laughs> so like it was all all <laughs> across all across the board it's but her like, prerogative man her, her prerogative yeah so it's i mean it's just cool to, to be able to experiment with kids i guess and my daughter's favorite song right now is bullet of butterfly wings by smashing pumpkins so <laughs> i can relate but yeah. I, I tell you I, yeah that was that was really cool like you know hearing you guys go back and forth about music but um yeah it was an awesome interview it's funny like um I remember seeing, I've seen Horror Store so many times on Amazon, and I'm always like, like forever, I, and I'm sure this is exactly what it was, I thought it was some book about Ikea forever. And, <laughs> and, and then finally when I actually looked, I was like, oh, that's a novel? That's so crazy. Um, but uh, but I, it was, it was, it's really cool, as JD said, to, you know, to be able to mix humor and horror is awesome, and also kind of like, I, I love what he talked about when he talked about, you know, the whole final girl trope in horror. And that is, I mean, it's, that's a convention, a trope that's like goes way back, but I like how he was just kind of like, no, like I, I, we need, that needs to change, you know, and, 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 and really made an effort to do that in, a, in what sounds like a really fun and unique way. So. You know, one of the things that doesn't really get talked about a whole lot is, um, you know, like humor in translations. Like, I, I didn't realize, you know, like, I've got a lot of humor in Fourth Monkey. Um, and, you know, I started getting the phone calls and the emails from the translators. You know, and like, you have to explain these jokes to them. And then they have to try and find, a, you know, some way to tell that same joke or something close to it in whatever language they're translating to, um, which is a huge nightmare. I'm not sure if Grady is in foreign languages or not, but I'd be really curious how, how that's kind of played out for him. Um, because he, he's got way more than I than I do. But... I, I'm constantly getting emails from like the Italian translator trying to explain some little, you know, it, it, it's a subtle stuff that really gets them. Like if it's, you know, flat out, very, you know, in your face humor, it, it works, but like a subtle little joke, um, that, that kind of thing is real difficult to translate. No, I, I think he's, he's just a really unique artist. I mean, like in, uh, e even in talking to him, like he's not a metalhead. But like yeah. he knows a lot about heavy metal and he knows a lot about rock music and he knows a lot about horror films and like and he isn't he's not like your typical horror writer either. I mean, if you look at even like his website and his branding, he 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 doesn't have that aesthetic. And and I and I wonder if that's part of the reason why he is successful is that he's created his own image, his own self and it's not like anybody else's. 
Well, horror has always been kind of the, you know, the wicked stepchild of the, the publishing industry. You know, like people love to read it, but, you know, you go back 20, 30 years ago, like people would have a paperback for some horror novel and they'd wrap it in the jacket of some other book because they didn't even want people to know that that's what they were looking at. Um, you know, Dean Koontz told me that, you know, his first book that sold really well was a horror novel. He spent the next 20 years trying to get that moniker taken off his name because everybody slapped it on you know every book cover and every article that was written about him. And he kept telling everybody, no, I'm not a horror author. I write suspense. I write write thrillers i write this i write that but because uh, he is he knew you know what it would do to sales at the time so uh it, it's a weird thing and it, it ebbs and flows um it seems to be you know really really picking up at the moment which is which is fantastic and elevated horror in general is is doing very well um so we'll see where it goes i i, I, I at this point um I, I think it's more mainstream than it ever was yeah for sure it's it's it is weird how it you know people are almost ashamed of it in a way and and i, I like the way he framed it he was like you know he you know mentioned like Mary Shelley he's like you know these are horror books these are horror novels and and I mean so many different um you know there's horror in so many different genres like and you know different situations I mean that there are situations in thrillers and sci-fi and stuff that would be horrifying to be in you know so it's just I don't know it's 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 really interesting how it ebbs and flows and also like horror movies never seem to not be popular like they always seem to be like have a fascination around them so it's just funny there's a weird stigma with books but you know it's it's nice to hear someone uh like grady you know working to change that so well, horror movies tend to work because the crowd is younger and those are the people that tend to go to the movies so there's there's always money coming in for that sort of thing and at the same you know on the flip side of that they're usually the cheapest ones out there to film um, so they, they've always been popular. It's, it's funny when I you know saw Bram Stoker's notes for Dracula, like that was a huge issue back then because horror wasn't like genres didn't exist. You know, you, you wrote fiction or you wrote, you know, something else. Um, and like he was really, you know, a lot of people looked down on him for the type of thing that he was writing. And then not just Dracula, but pretty much everything he wrote, you know, prior to that, it was, you know, along the, the same lines, along horror. And, you know, he was constantly defending it. Um, you know, I'd be kind of neat to be able to see him in today's world, be able to see, you know, what has changed and what, what's happened since then, because he, he never actually got to see it. You know, even Dracula wasn't popular until after he died. <laughs> Such a shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And Mary Shelley was 80 years before that, so I imagine it was even harder. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any other uh, big takeaways from the Grady Hendrix conversation? Anything we, else we didn't mention? No, I'm looking at the schedule. Next week we've got Riley Sager, whose you know first big novel was Final Girl. So I'm thinking we need to take the, the two of these guys, put them in a steel cage match, and, and see who comes out on top. Um, yeah, so Riley, I'm, I guess I'm jumping the gun here, but he's coming up next week. He's got a new book coming out called Survive the Night, um, which is really, really good. Um, I, I think, um, is it out yet, or is it, I, I think it's actually out at this point. It's going to be really close when this airs. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I also... Um... I just want to mention too uh, about Grady just for a second. Like, um, as as the interviewer, it's great when you talk to someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously, or can or can laugh at themselves. It just makes the conversation so much better. And I just really appreciated his just attitude and and approach to life. And you can tell that he's just enjoying himself and and not all self-important or anything. And uh, I just want to mention that because I, I really enjoyed the, the conversation. And I think that was a big big part of it yeah it was a great interview it was a really great interview and conversation yeah. and a uh, little side note real quick survive the night uh is available it so. is yeah okay. june 29th i just looked it up too yeah. okay uh and uh, i don't want to spoil anything for for our listener but uh man survive the night <laughs> i could not put that thing down it is 
it's an incredible premise, uh, incredibly simple premise that will keep you hooked until the last page. So if you have not read it yet and you want to hear Riley talk about it, um, you, you got time. And if you start reading, you won't put it down anyway. So go grab that book and start reading. Well, well luckily you said, I don't want to spoil anything for our listeners. So we only have one. So that one person won't be too disappointed. <laughs> That's a podcast thing, Zach. I, know, I don't care. I'm still going to call you out. So take <laughs> us out of here, Jay. All right. <laughs> To our listeners, make sure you go to writersingpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.